You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Us to you because we value the word so highly. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 45. And when you get there, go ahead and stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word. Again, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 45. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every corner. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if it's your first time, I want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. And we hope that you have a good time this morning. You enjoy yourself. And that maybe somebody gets to grab you and kind of share a little bit about who we are as a church and uh, what we're trying to do. So as Scott said, we're in the book of Mark. We got a lot of verses to cover, uh, about 25 verses. So what I'd like to do is pray for us and jump right in. And ask the Lord to speak to us through the power of his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you for the wonderful gift of your word that we come now and we have the privilege to submit to the, the authority and truth of your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you have not left us without the guidance of your word. And you have not left us without clear signposts that point us back to you in your word. We ask now, Holy Spirit, would you minister to us all uniquely as we have need? The things that we know that we need, that we have confessed before you, the things that we do not know, 
or the things that we do know, but we have yet to confess them out of fear or shame. We ask, my God, that now through the power of your word, you would meet those needs and that you would be glorified. Speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So what we have here is Christ beginning the first stages of his earthly ministry. We kind of covered a little bit of that last week after the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus into the wilderness. Uh, But now uh, we're covering in many ways the first actions of Christ, sermons preached by Jesus, uh, miracles performed by Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is not only to focus on the content of Christ's words and actions, but I want to focus on the context of Jesus' ministry in these passages. And the reason for that is because I don't think the context is incidental to the story. I think it's integral to the purpose of Christ's ministry and the pattern through which we're going to see him do ministry from this point and then on through the rest of the book. And then maybe even perhaps a pattern that we should take note of to follow ourselves in the context that Jesus himself followed. So let's just jump right in. Let's start in verse number 21, and I want to read this first section of Scripture. It says this, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region in Galilee. So the first thing that we see is Jesus shows up to a synagogue at Capernaum and preaches. And not only does he preach, but then also an unclean spirit or a man possessed with an unclean spirit confronts Jesus in the middle of his sermon. Now it's important for us to know what a synagogue is. We can't spend too much time on it. But a synagogue, the Hebrew word, simply means assembly. It's most akin to what we would consider to be our local churches because the word church in the New Testament in Greek means it's ekklesia, and it also means assembly. So it's not one-to-one, but I want you to think you have the temple in Jerusalem, and then you have many different synagogues throughout the cities. This would be where the scribes or the teachers of that village would come in every Sabbath day and teach Torah, Okay. And that's where they gathered, at least the whole village. Now, Jesus starts to preach in the synagogue, and immediately the crowd realizes this is no ordinary Sabbath day. They say to one another, this man is different. Now, you got to imagine, this is kind of rough. Jesus doesn't have to say any specific word against the scribes, although we know as we walk through the Gospels, Jesus doesn't have a problem saying tough things to the scribes or about them. But here, he doesn't say a word about the scribes, but he simply indicts the scribes by his very presence and his very sermon. Because the people turn to one another and say, this guy preaches with authority, not like our scribe. (laughs) Think about that for a second. If the scribe just so happens to be the guy who introduced him. It's like, we're going to have this guest speaker named Jesus, and they all clap for him, and then the scribe sits in the front row, and he hears all the murmurs, this guy preaches with authority, not like our guy. (laughs) 
Now, what is the role of the scribes in Israel? It's kind of important for us to note this, right? Going all the way back to the time of Ezra, the scribes were historians of the word. They were recorders of God's word, and they had a very meticulous job to write down the very words of God. And we could spend a lot of time talking about all their practices, but suffice it to say, they were meticulous about their job. As history goes on, They go from just writing down the word to being responsible for interpreting the word to being responsible for even teaching the word. And they become like our modern day lawyers and teachers in that they are very studied, very well read, like our college professors and the lawyers of our day who make their way into political positions, so did the scribes. And they were the elite of the day. And you may be saying, well, isn't this a good thing? Isn't that in many ways what we're supposed to be doing? And I would say yes and no. Jesus' issue as we go into the Gospels with the scribes is not their role, but it's their function. The scribes of Jesus' day had perverted their responsibility to the people. Rather than preaching and teaching the authority of God's word as servants to the people, they had begun to use God's word and the authority of God's word to oppress the people. They've begun to set up a kingdom of sorts for themselves along with the Herodian Pharisees. And in so doing, they began to leverage God's word for their own purposes. They had long abandoned God's word as in and of itself a powerful and mighty and holy thing as a means to bless people and drive out darkness. No, the word of God to them now was something to be leveraged so that the power and the authority of God's word would ultimately bolster their own power and their own authority over the people. Now, it's important that we note this because in doing so, whether wittingly or unwittingly, the scribes invited the very powers of darkness that's represented in this passage, invited them in to oppress the people of God. So Jesus begins to preach, and not long into his sermon exposing the word of God, a demon-possessed man stands up and is drawn out from the crowd and says, what have you come to do, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? Now, you got to imagine being in this crowd on that day, right? First of all, you're like, man, this guy is like totally different or he's legit, what's happening? Then a demon possessed guy gets up and says, I know who you are. Are you come to destroy us? And it's like your neighbor Fred who's speaking in a different voice. You're like, what in the world's happening with Fred? You know, he's yelling at Jesus. Jesus says, be silent. Silences him, casts out the demon. It says his body's convulsing and spirit leaves this man's body. Now we just take that for granted because Jesus, you know, does this on the regular in the gospels, but this is a unbelievable moment, a supernatural moment. Now, what I want to point out is what the demon actually says. And what we're going to find in the New Testament is that the demons often have some of the more, let's say, robust and true theology out of all the characters. It's odd. They don't submit to God or Christ, but what they say about them typically seems to be closer to the truth than some of even the disciples at the time of Jesus who were trying to figure it out. So they, this demon, first of all, if someone starts talking to you and they speak of themselves in the plural, this is trouble. What have you come to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And it's just one guy. It's like, this is not a good sign. Okay? Have you come to destroy us, he says. 1 John chapter number 3, look at what, have, what is spoken of, of John 
in verse number eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. Here's the key line. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So the first thing we catch here is that this demon seems to know what it means for Jesus to show up. Is this it? Is this the moment? Are you going to destroy us? This exact line is also repeated other times when Jesus shows up, like the man who was on the island who used to cut himself, and he shows up and he says, the legion of demons inside of him says, have you come to destroy us? And Jesus, of course, permits those demons to go into the pigs. Notice that the demons know who Jesus is. All of Capernaum is just questioning about who he is, but the demons know. The rejection of the spiritual realm in our culture, our materialistic culture, the rejection that there is a cosmic battle raging around us is merely willful and willful biblical ignorance. The Bible is repute with this truth. We live in not merely a material realm, but also a spiritual realm. And so because of that, we should not find it odd that we see in this account of Jesus' ministry, the very first thing that happens when he begins to preach is a confrontation with a demon-possessed man. Why? Because if there truly is a battle between light and dark, there has never been a light that's appeared like this light. And he shows up preaching. Now I want you to think about this. There have been many Sabbath days up until this point, and perhaps this man has been in many different Sabbath synagogue sermons, but has yet to ever have a moment like this. And why is that? Well, the scribes had collaborated once again, whether wittingly or unwittingly, with the spirits of darkness, and they did so when they used themselves as gods, or rather to say they used God's word to set themselves up as gods to the people. They alone were dictates to the people about the word of God, but they didn't use the word of God as God would have them, but instead to bolster the traditions of men, to bolster their own traditions and their own authority. And when they did so, they were protecting their own power, their own elitism, but they were also doing something else, whether they knew it or not. When they did so, they were cooperating, collaborating with spirits of darkness Because after all, the reason that this man most likely had never been drawn out of a congregation like this is that the very men who were standing up preaching the word of God to these people in Capernaum were not threats to the works of darkness, but co-collaborators. They were no threat to the spirits at work there. But then King Jesus arrives. And King Jesus is an immediate threat. And they know it. Now, we don't know the text that Jesus was preaching from that day. Sometimes the Bible does record this. Like, for instance, at one point he walks into a synagogue and opens up the scroll of Isaiah and reads from Isaiah 61, and the Bible's very clear that's what he preached. In this passage, we don't know. But I will say, we do know at bare minimum what some of the content was, not merely because the Bible had recorded it a few verses earlier, but also because of the response of the demon-possessed man. His message was probably something like, the king is here. We know this because Mark told us that Jesus' first message was, repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, kingdoms need kings. And this is why this demon-possessed man, or rather, let, let us say it like this, the spirit at work in this man was threatened because the king showed up and announced his arrival. None of the minions of the kingdom of darkness have quarter where the king reigns. 
Specifically, where Christ is king, the people are not oppressed, but they are set free. That's the message we get right off the bat. Now, I think I want to spend a moment here before we move on on what I mean by freedom, because that is at the very crux of the question. It was with our first parents in the garden, and it is with the people of Capernaum, and it is for us today. The freedom that Christ offers is not the self-same freedom that we are often acquainted with in cultural conversation. This is a freedom, the freedom Jesus speaks of, that is freedom in God, toward God, not a freedom apart from God or from God. Our first parents, in cooperation with the serpent, sought freedom from God's authority. They sought freedom apart from his rule, apart from God himself. And in doing so, what they actually received was bondage, slavery, and death. Jesus reveals to the people that he himself and in himself is the only offer to true freedom because apart from him, there is no freedom because he is the very word of God made flesh. Jesus walks into the synagogue and he affirms the words of the apostle Paul written in 2 Corinthians Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And in that moment, the man chained and oppressed by a demon, for we do not know how long, is set free, merely by the presence and the preaching of the word made flesh. Jesus speaks with this authority, and the people don't know it yet, but they will. The reason Jesus is unlike the scribes is not merely because of his righteousness and their unrighteousness. It's because they are secondhand orators of God's word, and Jesus is the word of God made flesh. They merely are repeaters of what they've heard. Jesus speaks, and it is so. This should take us back to Genesis chapter 1, where God creates the heavens and the earth with his voice. And then Jesus shows up his first ministry moment in the church, and he begins to Say, let there be light, and all the darkness starts to squeal and screech and flee. That's what's happening here. Jesus entering this world tragically broken by sin, the people tragically oppressed by the serpent, the church leaders so feckless, so unwise, so unable to do anything about it that they actually collaborate, and then Jesus speaks, and he begins to draw out the poison like a Like poison draws out from a wound, he just draws it out. Now, as I mentioned earlier, but what about the context? I think it's important. Where did Jesus go first? Well, the context is Jesus starts off his ministry at the church. Or another way to put it would be the king goes to set the church in order first. If Jesus arrived on the scene today and he was intent to establish his kingdom and we all knew it, where would we expect him to go? Well, probably to the seats of power, but if Jesus was going to confront darkness, maybe if you're as cynical as me and, you know, someone came in and said, where's the, you know, the dark place? Where's the the cesspool? You might say he shows up at somewhere like, I don't know, Washington, D.C. You know, that might be a good start. (laughs) But notice, Jesus doesn't go to Rome No, Jesus goes to church, and it teaches us that God's intent and God's plan to expand his kingdom on earth is not a plan that begins at the state house, but it will begin at the church house. Or as Peter says, judgment will begin at the household of God, and so the king shows up to the church. And not just 
does he go to the temple first? According to Mark, he shows up to this very local church and synagogue in Capernaum with everyday fishermen, and he begins to preach. He sets things in order in the synagogue, and then he moves on from there. Well, we'll get back to why. What happens next? Well, let's read next in verse number 29 through 34. And immediately he left the synagogue. There's Mark's favorite word, immediately. And he entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately, there it is again, they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. So Jesus immediately makes his way from the church to the home of the disciple Peter, and he's informed about Peter's mother-in-law who's laying sick in bed, and Jesus wastes no time to enter into the room where she lays, grabs her by the hand, and says, be made well, and immediately she's healed. It's not a progressive healing. This is not like an antidote that he offers, and then over time, she slowly, the antibiotics work. No, she stands up, she's strengthened, and she begins to serve them food. It's unbelievable. Now, there's something intensely personal about these moments that we could probably spend hours on, right? This interaction with the mother-in-law. And if you're a Christian in the room, then you can equate this immediately to the intensely personal moment that you came to know Christ, that it felt like he, he just knew that you're the only one in the world in this moment and met you somehow, just powerfully. We're going to have many opportunities to talk about those moments, and this morning, my focus is on a more broad view, and that is that the king sets the household into order immediately after leaving the church. He goes to the home, to the family. When Christ enters the household and his authority rests there, there's a healing that takes place. This is true even today. When a family welcomes the authority of King Jesus into their home, all that is sick and out of order is made well and brought into health and to wholeness. And until that is true, there will always be disorder because Christ or chaos are the only two options. Now, the correlation for us as Christians should be clear here. It goes something like this. I'll start with the negative. When the church does not submit to the authority of Christ, the households become sick. When the scribes are collaborating with the serpent, the households are sick, inevitably so. But the inverse is true here, too. When the authority of Christ is celebrated in the church, the authority of Christ is celebrated in the home, and both are made whole. When darkness is driven out of the church, it paves the way for the authority of Christ to enter the household and bring healing and wholeness to all who are inside. You see, Jesus' words to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23 was that they were like whitewashed tombs. They were like cups that were beautiful on the outside and dirty on the inside. And the church, if we're not careful, can become a place where our external is beautified and yet inwardly there's nothing but dead works, not faith. And when that happens, inevitably, then in the confines of our home, when we turn the shutters down, the true us comes out, even if in the church we are among the pretense of righteousness. 
And Jesus says, let's confront what's on the inside in the church so that there might be wholeness in the home. Now, what happens after this is, should be shocking to us, but then again, if we think much about it, it's not all that shocking. Is immediately as this healing happens, Jesus beginning with the church going into the home, word begins to spread that this man has a different kind of authority, and they go from house to house, town to town. Before you know it, at evening time, the Bible records that Jesus opens the door to Peter's household, and the entire village is there. Now, this is unbelievable. You know, you think about this, and I was laughing with the 9 o'clock service. you got to imagine, you know, somebody knocking on your door and is like, hey, uh, is your cousin Billy here? Like, I don't, I don't know where he's at. You know how Billy is. Like, that's exactly why I'm here to get Billy. we got to take him to Jesus. That guy has problems. And then if you're Billy, you're like, dude, why are you saying that? Listen, trust me. Come meet my friend. You know, you're just thinking if I can get him in proximity... It's going to be a Jerry Springer moment. You know, he's going to confront Jesus, and then Jesus is going to send it, and that, they're bringing everybody. The Bible says they're bringing sick people and demon-possessed people to stand at the front door of Peter's house after his mom just got out of bed sick. Let me tell you, I know after doing ministry as long as I have, this is when your home group leaders quit. I am done with this job. The entire city's on the outside of the door. And Jesus begins to heal. Jesus begins to cast out demons. Jesus begins to make and set order in the city. When the church and the household are wholly under the authority and reign of Christ, the city will inevitably be drawn into that life. The city is healed from the church and then the household out, not, in, not the other way around. This is why Jesus shows up to the church first. Although it begins at the church, the power and the authority of Jesus will not be confined to the walls of the church, but it will inevitably also go into the household. And then the authority of Christ will not be confined to the walls of your household, but it will inevitably make its way out of the door just as quickly as it came in. You know, every church has a mission statement. You know, we mentioned ours earlier, Scott mentioned it, to make the gospel unignorable. In most churches, that mission statement will if there's biblical fidelity, we'll have something to do with the Great Commission because we find this to be fundamental. Most Christians do. Jesus telling us to go out into all of creation, preaching the gospel, making disciples. Jesus' pattern here seems to give us an indication that his starting line is with the church and then in the home and that from that, the city is drawn into that kind of life. Now, Does the Bible give us that indication anywhere else? Well, yes, when it tells us that we are a what? A lamp that's set on a stand that gives light to the city. Or that we're a city on a hill. But who is he talking to? The disciples, the church. That that light is supposed to shine to everybody outside. Now, what's interesting is if we use these concentric circles and we have Christ in the center and they mix away to the church and then to the household and then to the city, and then we get this last story. I'm going to come back, by the way, to verses 35 through 39. I'm going to start in verse 40 here. Listen to this last story. And then a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling. He said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him, I will be clean. 
And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing that what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and he began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, I love, they have a love-hate relationship with certain, certain portions of these passages because, you know, Jesus is always telling people, hey, don't tell anyone. And the first thing they do is tell everybody. And it's like, you kind of can't blame them. I mean, if you, if you had been, I don't know, leprous for many years and then you get healed, you're probably going to have a hard time not sharing it. On the other hand, it kind of ruins the whole Jesus getting to be in cities and do ministry because now he has to do all of his ministry basically out in the desert. But this is over and over again, people will ask, well, why does Jesus keep telling people don't tell anyone? Well, there's a number of reasons, but I think the most common one we'll see even stated in the scriptures is Jesus knows his timing when he's to be crucified, and he knows that telling more people will equate to more publicity, which could lead to more upheaval, which could lead to a premature moment of arrest. Now, what we also know is that the divine God-man has a way of getting around certain situations like this. Sticky situations like at one point when they want to make him king and the Bible just records and he went out from the midst of them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that and I read it over and over again, I'm thinking if the crowd is bearing down on him and almost to the point where it pushes him off a cliff and then it just says, and then he went through the midst, feels very superhero-ish. Feels invisibility cloak mode, okay, to me. How does he do such a thing? Well, because the Lord knows when the time comes and what he will do. But in this case, what we see is perhaps in the sovereignty and providence of God, moments like this with the leper actually drive Jesus' ministry out into the desolate places where he has interactions with people that he would have never had interactions with, much like the leper himself. Now, in order for us to understand this passage, we have to understand the Old Covenant. The book of Leviticus, chapter 13, had very strict and stringent laws about leprosy and how the priests were to handle lepers for the community and the tribes of Israel. The Bible said that the lepers were to present themselves to the priest, and if they had lesions on the skin, they were to be sent outside the camp and to sleep alone for seven days and then come back to the priest. If the lesions were still there, they were sent out because they were ritualistically unclean. The lepers were not to be amongst the people. Lepers were not to be with their families even. If their families were in the village, you go out there. Even more than that, the priests who come in contact with these lepers had a very strict rule that they were not to be let's say, handling the lepers, touching, being rich. If they were made unclean, they better do a lot of washing, right? So Jesus, our high priest here, has a really interesting interaction with the leper. I want you to think about this man. He has been alienated and isolated. We do not know how long, but any length of time would be a lot from people. He's not in Capernaum. He's not in the village. He doesn't get to hang out in these places. Let me tell you, he wasn't at the synagogue because he's not welcome at the synagogue, and then he sees Jesus, and for the first time, we see a person who knows who Jesus is also. And he says to Jesus, I know who you are. Or how do we know that he says that? Because he says, if you will, you can make me clean. 
He doesn't say, prove yourself to me, show me a sign. He doesn't say, show me your credentials, show me your MDiv. He says, I know if you will, you can make me clean. And then listen to these gracious words that come from the mouth of our Savior. He says, I will be clean. I mean, those four words should just resonate with us. They should just, they should shock us. This man knows rightly that the will of the king is so if he will just speak it. And the king's response is, it is his will that this outcast be welcomed back in. That this man who's ritualistically unclean be made clean. Now we should take that as the king's will is that the outcast, the unclean, the rejected, the lonely, those on the outskirts of society, that they be made clean. And that by his authority, he wills it to be so. And that they would be welcomed back in. Now it's interesting. Remember, we're doing our concentric circles. So this is probably the furthest out you can get, right? All right. Where does Jesus send that man back? Go back to the church house, to the priest. Show yourself to him. Proof that you've been cleansed. So he sends him back to the family of God, back to the center, back to the sacred place of worship with his family, his spiritual family. And here's what we know about the Bible is the Bible says that this has happened in another instance. We don't get the priest's actual engagement with this leper in this passage, but we did get it in some other passages. Jesus healed a man who was lame, sent him back to the priest, and the priest was not interested in welcoming this man back. He's more angry about who did this for you on the Sabbath. And he starts arguing with the man, and the man says, a guy named Jesus did. He says, so you're a disciple of Jesus. And you ought to love the lame man's response because he says, listen, I'm not a disciple of anybody. Here's what I know. He said, be healed. I was healed. And they keep questioning him about, well, who is he? Does he teach? What does he teach? Does he claim that he's the son of God? And the lame man says, listen, do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? And of course, angry, they cast him out of the temple. But the point from Jesus here is that there's a welcoming back, a sending back of even the people that are on the furthest outskirts. Now, what kind of application can we take from this, from the context of this passage? Well, first and foremost, number one, the church must be set in order under Christ's reign and Christ's authority. Luke chapter number 11, verses 33 through 36. Listen to this passage. A stern warning from Jesus. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. Okay, that makes sense. City on a hill. But what about this? But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays give you light. How can the light in you be darkness? And why should we heed that stern warning today as the church? Well, the answer is remember the scribes who wore long robes, prayed on the street corners. They looked the part. They were theologically sound. Externally, they tithed from their spice racks. 
Truly, they understood the word of God, and you better understand it too. And yet, internally, they were rotten men, cared only about their own authority, cared only about their own well-being, leveraging God's word for their own devices. Their light had become darkness. And so because of it, what happened? The whole body suffered. The whole body was dark. God's intention for the church is for the whole body to be a light that expands out from the church, out from our homes, outward into the world. But in order for this to be so, we must reject the pattern of the scribes. Using the beloved, using God's church as a means of self-gratification or vain glory. We must never use the authority or the power of God's word to justify or to gratify our own vain desires for autonomy or freedom from him. And we must not assuage the consciences of others who desire to do so either. The church cannot be a place that conforms to the fickle and flimsy will of any man or any woman, but a place where we are all constantly brought back together to conform to the sure and steadfast will of Jesus Christ. The church is a place where we should worship God, join together, all of the saints with one voice in adoration and where the word of God is proclaimed and desired, where we stand in awe of Christ even as we simultaneously kneel and tremble at the power of his word, we are raised up by his spirit to exult because he has spoken to us grace and peace and love. Friends, the church should be a place that we are eager for truth, not eager to be affirmed, where we are eager to honor God not eager to be honored by man, where we are eager to bless one another and not to curse, to encourage one another and not to tear down. In short, the church is the place where the light should shine and darkness has no quarter. Number two, the household must be set in order under Christ's reign and authority. Now, we live in a time and in a land where households have become sick. The family unit has been degraded, fathers and mothers are absent, roles are all out of whack, children are being raised by social media influencers. I don't even know what that means or who they are personally, but I know, you know enough to know it's not good. And I could, spend prob- I could probably do a whole conference on that, okay? We probably could, pro- maybe we should, but here's what I want to say. I want to focus here to say, brothers, sisters, let us tend to the field that God has given us and be sparing of our assessment of other fields, lest we fall by the same, self-same arrogance. Brothers and sisters, for the petty arguments that we have allowed to sow discontentment in our marriages, we must repent of these things. We must repent for dealing callously and tritely with the one whom God has covenanted you to. For the careless ways which our words have cut one another down, even maybe our children, for the pride in us that so easily causes us to rise up against the ones God has graciously called family, we must return to God and honor the sacredness of our marriage covenants, bowing our knee before King Jesus and finding wholeness again. Because the self-same enemy that possessed the man in Capernaum desires to destroy the home. And lest we become like the scribes and co-conspire, we must repent 
where we have begun to imitate the serpent and not the king. Tend to your fields at home, brothers and sisters. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath today. Sow seeds today in the springtime that at the harvest you will not be ashamed to reap. Repent where you have sought to build your own kingdom at home and welcome back Christ the King because he makes all that is ailing and all that is sick well. Only then can the city be drawn to the stoop of our houses to peer in wonder at Christ our King and the effects of his lordship. Only then will the outcast be brought back to the household of God and welcomed like the prodigal son with no intent and no hint of the older brother scoffing. And the reason is because only then would we truly understand the mercy of God forgiving us. Only then can we be a lamp on a stand, a city on a hill. I want to end with Mark 1, 35 through 39, where I skipped. I always promise I'll come back to that. Listen to this passage. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Friends, that's true. It was true then when he said it in the context, and it's true now, whether you know it or not, every human being is really searching for Jesus, and they only find substitutes or the real thing. And Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So he basically goes out to every town and does what he did here. Jesus came to the earth, the word of God made flesh, and he did so to establish his kingdom. And I want to say to you, this self-same work that Jesus was doing here in Mark 1, he is doing today. He still does this exact same work. And he does it both for you and in you, and hear me, and through you. Everywhere we go, the word of Christ dwells in us richly. If you're a Christian in the room, you bring, because the Spirit of God is alive in you, you bring with you the amnesty and the authority of the King. And along with you, when you walk into a room, you bring light that casts out darkness, healing that makes well the sick, and cleansing that welcomes the outcast back home. And you do this not on your own merit, not on your own record, not on your own ability, but by the mercy and grace of Christ who died and rose again and poured out his spirit upon you and in you, baptizing you and filling you, so that even when you and I have our worst day, Christ stands glorious in you. And so I commend to you now that no matter what it is that may be in your own household is sick and ailing, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is alive in you, and he is still about the business of healing that which is sick. You cannot, but he can. That which is unclean, you cannot make clean, but hear the words of Jesus this morning, I will be clean, he says. You cannot cast out the darkness, but he can, and he does by his presence. And so I commend to you the words of Paul the Apostle when he spoke to the church. He said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I say that to you this morning. Christ in you, brothers and sisters, 
is the hope of glory. Christ in you. Christ himself, the word of God made flesh by his spirit, dwells in you, brothers and sisters. And of that be not ashamed. Because he can make even the most broken whole, and hear me, even the most dysfunctional family, church family like ours. (laughs) He's a good father. And he can make us new again. Let me pray for us. Father, I am so humbled by the truth of your word. And I ask now, would you speak with the authoritative power that you and you alone have? By your spirit, we ask that you would speak to us all, both individually and corporately. For all of our faults and flaws, you have called us children, and so we are your children. I pray for the marriages under the sound of my voice, that you would take whatever is sick and ailing and make it whole and well. For any darkness that is sought to oppress, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you shine now the light of Christ and bring freedom. For any that have been constantly berated about their uncleanness this morning, I pray that the words of our Lord Jesus would ring true over them, that you will and they are clean. And as we take of your supper, we ask now that in reflection we would be both humbled and also exalted by your grace. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.